episode two of Ricky Richards represents. When you film something, it's like when you're doing a sculpture. You've got a, like a block of concrete. The sculpture's in there. The foot, you've got the footage. You just got to chisel away. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Ricky Richards represents the show where we talk tips of success with leading figures of design and innovation. Today, I'm talking to Reese Chapman, the creator and director of Wonder Kid, about the lack of openly gay players in football. Hello everyone and welcome to Ricky Richards Represents. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with my friend Reese, and uh, we're just going to talk through his uh, latest film that he's been launching. Me and Reese have known each other for quite a while now. We met through a mutual friend and yeah, I've, I've watched Reese go on quite a journey and uh, I'm hopefully using this opportunity as a way to explore that journey and to speak with Reese. So without further ado, um, Reese, could you tell us a little bit about you and your project? So, my name's Reese. obviously. Um, I'm 27 years old. I'm from a place called The Fens in East Anglia, and I've been working on a film called Wonder Kid for the last three years, which is about a fictional gay footballer, and we've used it as a kind of vessel to build a campaign about raising awareness of uh, lack of openly gay footballers. In, yeah, that's it, really. Okay, uh, so... This is something that has been really, really interesting for me, I think, because when we first met and we talked about Wonder Kid, the first time we ever spoke about it was in a pub, I think, in the was back that? of it, in the beer garden, in the back, just, I'm not even sure if we were drinking, but we were just ch- uh, sat down chilling. I think I remember that, yeah. You were kind of telling me the seed of this idea that hadn't mm-hmm. yet been, it wasn't anything, but you had quite a clear vision. Mm-hmm. You were telling me exactly what it is you wanted to create way before it was ever a, a spark, it was just a spark in your brain, I guess. Yeah. And it's come so far. So I guess the first thing I want to touch on is you raised £25,000. Or yeah. did you, you raise more than that in the end, didn't you? Was it four, thirty? yeah. Around £30,000 to actually create the film, which for a short film is virtually unheard of. Yeah. And um, especially on Kickstarter, a lot of people raise maybe 500 or a couple of thousand pounds at a push. Yeah. And you created this very ambitious goal. And I just wondered if you could maybe explain to people why you've... Bearing in mind you were an untested filmmaker at that point, so you hadn't created anything else. You didn't particularly have a massive audience at that point, and yet you set this ambitious goal and then you fulfilled it. How did you go about doing that? What was the process, that kind of thing? So I knew that this was a great idea, and I knew that... It was a really important time for football for for this issue, basically, and I knew that if I really went for it, it was possible. Now, now, now that I hear what you say, that I do realise what an achievement it actually is. But at the time, I wasn't really thinking that way. I was just focused and determined. And well, firstly, I, I I trusted in my own abilities as a director long before anyone else did, so that that wasn't really an issue to me. It was. It's quite annoying having to hear every day that you know it's not possible, or you're not capable of this, you need to do this, you need to do that. But I didn't really let that bother me. I, I always focused on football and what I was trying to do in football and the cause and how it was really important for the gay community that we made this film and we, we used it to you know, kind of shine a light on this subject. And, and it was that that carried it through, I believe. So actually, let's talk about that because... 
When you were creating the Kickstarter campaign, you raised maybe five to seven thousand, I seem to remember, and then um, you know there was a, a transition. There was a, a point in which all of a sudden you you actually built momentum and the thing took off, and you saw the rest of the money come in pretty quickly. Um, so maybe if like, could you explain maybe how that process came to be? Yeah, sure. So. When, when I decided to do a Kickstarter video, I wanted to use it as an opportunity to show my abilities as a filmmaker. You know, a lot of people, and they recommend as well that you just do like a raw kind of webcam video or something simple to communicate your idea. But I wanted to do something with, you know, a bit more production value, you know, really make the best video I possibly could on that at that time and with that kind of resources available. And so we made a really good video that really resonated with people on the subject mainly as well but we got like two weeks in and um, I think we only had like 7,000 and we were like maybe we've bitten off more than we can chew here but I, we'd had a lot of press about the, the project and it was as much about raising awareness about the issue as to raise money to make a film on the subject so that was really helpful but one of the one of the positives from the coverage we got was I was invited into the Telegraph, where we are now, um, but more on that later. Uh, and they basically said, you know, like anything they can do to help, they'll make sure that I have everything I need to, to make the film happen. And, and it was through that that kind of took the pressure off. So uh, this isn't a question I have in all the questions, but do you, have, you, have brands been quite supportive throughout this? Yeah. So if you were, a f- if it wasn't this project and you were a filmmaker looking to create a film on subject matter that you felt could make a difference to people, would you recommend people push towards brands to see if they can get support? Do you yeah, think this was a particularly relevant issue maybe? or Yeah, definitely. Well, one of, one of the things about um, football films that I don't like is and a lot of them don't feel very authentic. Like you'll see plane kits and like, locations that aren't up to the standards of what they're trying to portray and believability to me is really key in making a film like this work you know the audience has to believe it's it's a real thing they're watching to enable them to switch off and be taken along that journey so the brand support we've had you know is phenomenal but it was important for me to kind of to get the support of these kind of brands in order to make the film as believable as possible. It wasn't that I was reaching out to brands for support for the sake of it. Yeah. And there are more ways than just financial that brands can support you. For example, you know, like Adidas helped us with the kits, you know, and, and, you know, that saved us a lot of money, but it was more of an aesthetic thing. And were the brands with the subject matter of the film, were the people that weren't supportive? Like with that, you don't necessarily need to name names, but yeah, it's certain, definitely. You know, we we approached many, many brands, many of whom didn't even reply or were quite short in their response. But do you, I think, found... do you think that was because that it's not something they do, or do you think it was because they they didn't agree with the issue? I think for some, it's probably that they don't usually support things like that. But for others, I think they're afraid of the issue. Really, to be honest, or perhaps the people we were asking didn't really care about it you know, rather than the brand itself not, not being interested okay so this is something else I thought was quite interesting so when you started this film these two probably fit hand in hand questions I've got here so you didn't have a 
you had the basis of a script mm -hmm. when you were yeah. building a lot of momentum and also you managed to build like quite a significant team of experienced people and um you know like i i was lucky enough to come to some of the like one of those first meetings when you were discussing some strategy around how to yeah. raise awareness of it and stuff like that and i was really surprised that you'd built this team of people in legit um you know soho based film production companies yeah. some of the best production companies in the world were, were giving you support on this project and how did you go about you know reaching out to those first people yeah so before before I probably go into the specifics I think if you if you really believe in something and you're passionate about it that's infectious you know and you know I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I, I, I'm a salesman as such, but I did sell shoes when I was younger. And, and from that, I learned a lot about how to communicate an idea to someone. And I think when I was initially starting out, you know, I did struggle to get it off the ground. But it was a perseverance that I showed that I think got people to believe in it. But um, the, the first major kind of milestone we, we had in getting a team together, etc., is when I made that producer video. Right, yeah, yeah. I so I, I was going to enter into like Samsung launching people, the Idris Elba thing, um, and we kind of missed the deadline, but I decided to shoot what I'd planned anyway and turn it into like a call to get, um, you know, at the time a producer, but mainly a team together to help me make it. And it, that video got shared all over the place. And it was a really good kind of way to prepare for a crowdfunding campaign. And I had like 100 people get in touch. It was shared on all these blogs and stuff. And, and it kind of went from there. So I think people believed in in what I was trying to do from the way I was talking about it. And then they saw this video and kind of so were I, excited by it. I was going to say, I think there's also maybe a bit of a bigger lesson here. So um, most people, if they were looking for a producer, may post on a job war or... Yeah. And if they're going to do a Kickstarter, like you say, they do this thing to camera. But in all of these in, you know, introductory things, you took the time. Like, this has been a long project. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you, you've taken time with every step of it to, to take it the extra mile. And then as a result of that, you've seen extra mile results. Yeah. And you know, I struggle with this personally, the pa like patience to, to actually execute something at a high enough standard that it gives you the leverage you need. And I think that you kind of mastered that. And, um, yeah, yeah well, I, I've, I, was, I spoke to someone recently about this. And basically, as a filmmaker, the two probably biggest qualities you need is, you know, the ability to persevere with, with something. You know, you're often waiting for one person to get back to you on one thing to tell another person to go and do another thing. And it's slow, especially when you don't have you know if your career's in the early phases and you don't have the resources or finances you need you know you're often waiting around for things to happen but also you need a lot of patience for when that's happening you know a lot of people would give up or think you know this is not happening but what I try to do is just structure every phase and only focus on that bit so you know like from from when we've worked together when I'm working on a, a logo or a design or a website I put everything into that and yeah. I become obsessed with that thing at that that time because you don't you don't if you, if you just started out to make a film of the magnitude we've made here you, you'd be overwhelmed with it you just focus on what's right in front of you 
you know, or you set a goal and you work towards that goal and then once you achieve that goal you move on to the next one and soon things start to fall in place well, this is what I refer to as bird by bird bird by bird yeah so it's a, which is a book by Anne Lamont about the backstory to this is uh, her brother needed to write about 100 birds and she just said go bird by bird basically take one step at a time you'll get there eventually that's true yeah but and it's I think film is a process like that right where you need to concentrate on one thing. But what's also really interesting, or something I've experienced, and I'm sure you will say the same, is when you're actually filming and in the moment, that's a very different experience to all the stuff that surrounds the film itself. Yeah. Like, I, I've actually found myself that when you film and then you come off the next day, you're on a bit of a you've been on a buzz and then you're on a low afterwards yeah. because it was so exciting and you know it's going to be months before or you know at least yeah. several weeks before you're back in that environment again and then you, it's down to the grind like that's the hard part all the stuff behind yeah. the scenes well the film in itself is actually although it is challenging to me it's the easiest part I, I often think about uh, f- filmmaking as like a, a boxer training for a fight so all the planning that you do is like your training camp and then the fight itself is often the easy part you know, you know and and like like um like boxing you know films are kind of won and lost in the preparation for it and yeah post post production or you know after that you're on a massive high and it's very slow and mundane but at least you know you're you've got something to create or you're you're uh, when you film something it's like when you're doing a sculpture You've got a, like a block of concrete. The sculpture's in there. The foot, you've got the footage. You've just got to chisel away. And, and what I'd say one of the most challenging parts of post-production is until you're nearly there, it doesn't work. Yeah, well, um, this is something... Like so, a sculpture. Well, I, you showed me some of the early, very early iterations of Wonder Kid. Yeah. Before there was the crowd and, you know, all these amazing things that have happened. Mm. And I was super surprised, actually, at how much the production standard was improved via post-production phase mm. especially with things like the crowd and stuff oh and yeah that. completely um i think the biggest challenge you face as a director in post-production is using your imagination in those those parts especially if you consider that sound is done after the offline is complete and you've just got to focus on the, the storytelling aspect of it and and I would imagine for some people that'd be very difficult. Fortunately, it's something I just can do. So when you, uh, so this is something again I would struggle with, but I think you deal with really well. So you've got this crowd that you need to put into the background of a film. Now I don't myself. If I don't know how to personally do it, I then feel like I need to, I guess, pamper to some degree to the needs of the people that are executing it because I'm like, you know what you're doing. Whereas I feel like when you're a filmmaker, you need to be really, I think pedantic's the right word, like you need to be um, focused on getting the best result. And so you need to still be able to dictate the result that you want, despite the fact that you're you not, you can't do it yourself, which yeah. is a massive, especially if you're a young filmmaker and you're working with experienced people who are older than you, to be, to be able to say, no, that's not good enough. Mm. Like that's tough, right? And uh, yeah, and, Quite often, when when I do, you know, when I have said that in the past, I've, there's been an air of "how dare you" or "I know what I'm doing" kind of thing about it. And 
fortunately, not it's not always been like that for me. But yeah, you have. I mean, I think the biggest misconception is that a lot of people think if you're experienced or you're educated or you know you're you can do something, then if you're not, then you don't really know what you're talking about. But what I find is that intelligence can be applied to anything. You know, if you're intelligent, you can go and look at something you've never looked at before, and look and you can observe and judge and. And think about improving in a way that someone that isn't intelligent can't. And because because filmmaking has such so many barriers to entry, there are people that exist within the industry that aren't actually that good at what they do. They, their achievement is actually getting into film. And and that and that misconception. Yeah, well, it's, it, there's a weird parallel there. With sorry if I've interrupted you there, no, but no, not at all even the the name of this podcast so i say it's tips of success with leading figures of design and innovation mm-hmm. well you're a filmmaker so how yeah. you know i believe you're innovative as a as a young filmmaker anyway but for me design is something which is applies to everything and so basically you're designing your life you're designing a film yeah. it's but the process of going from something which doesn't exist to something that does and, and going about that the best way um and I think you're right. I think, fortunately, the bar to entry is lowering in film. Yeah. But prior to now, it was it, it has typically been a rich man's game, right? It's of course, yeah. And you know, DSLR cameras have really helped. You know, I don't think. You know, the, the DSLR cameras coming around has led to things like Red Red Epics and you know, the Arri digital cameras becoming more accessible and stuff like that you know it's certainly paved the way for more accessibility i think the downside to the accessibility is it saturates the internet with so much stuff that isn't quite up to standard but you know talent will always prevail in it i think this is important as well for young filmmakers especially is to know that there is a bunch of people out in the world that struggle with say the ideas and the execution and the perseverance on product uh, uh, projects you know, I know filmmakers who are significantly older and yet they've not produced their first short film. And yet they've got all the equipment, they've they've got experience on set, blah, blah, blah. And they probably are talented. Yeah, and that's it. And, but you can work with people like this and, you know, go and seek the equipment. People often say, you know, you can create a great short film on your mobile now, which is true. Yeah. But that's not to say that if you, you know, reached out to 50 production companies in London that you couldn't get the high-end equipment for probably next to nothing if you were mm. put, you know persevered enough um well you know like a lot of a lot of people that i know who've who have wanted to get into film have got into film they've become obsessed with the craft now like how to use a camera or how to edit and and all that side of things which is great for getting a film made but the most important part of any film is the story now if you if you don't give any attention to the story, you can shoot something beautifully. It can be well edited. It can have a high production value. But you know, the average person wouldn't appreciate it. You know, I often think, well, would my nan understand this, or would my nan my nan like what this is? You know, and and unless you know, production value, cinematography, and, and editing, etc. You know, it's it's um. You know, it's something I obsess over, but it's the least important part. It's the story. Yeah, because people say that 
going back to shooting on an iPhone, if it's a great compelling story, yeah. you, you can shoot something feasibly on an iPhone in a in a spare bedroom in a house. And if the if the idea is good, it will spread. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, people shoot pilots and stuff, don't they, on lo-fi stuff, and that's the, the if the story's compelling enough, they'll go on to produce it as a feature, maybe later on down the line or whatever. But um, so, how did you go about mastering the art of storytelling then? Well, I I'd say I'm fortunate that I was quite a bizarre little kid where um, I mastered it then. You know, uh, I would wake up about four in the morning and I would go straight away and turn the TV on and wait, watching CFAX or Teletext, waiting for TV to start. From my Some of my earliest memories are sitting in front of a TV on my own. So I, I spent plenty of time as a kid observing TV shows and how the storytelling side of that, but I also I spent a great deal of time drawing pictures my mum often tells me that I had no interest in the outside world. All I wanted to do was draw. And I also had a huge collection of toy figures. And just used to play with them. And uh, I also used to like dressing up. So well, what's funny though? So I'm just gonna I'm gonna come at you at this because what you just explained is basically most '90s kids' childhood. Yeah. You know, stuck in front of the TV, drawing. Um, playing with mm. toys but is was there something specific like would you think it was the the way you perceived it or was it that you were actually for example i had a friend and he used to create drawings of like these war scenes mm-hmm. and his pictures were they were stories the pictures i used to draw were like bits of they, yeah. they were supposed to be bits of art they weren't stories yeah you know? well my um my my drawings were it was a sense of realism about them. I would try and mimic what I saw as as much as possible. I and but going back to what you're saying about that being most kids' childhoods, yeah, it was. I took it to the extreme, really. You know, I had I didn't I didn't really have any friends, and but also I had a problem with my right eye, so I had what's called a ptosis of the right eye, which meant the muscle was really weak in the eyelid. So. um when I was like excited, it would shut. When I was sad, it would shut. If I was tired, you know, any reason, my eye would shut. So this grew to me. This grew. This made me very introvert and not wanting to draw attention to myself. So I become even more observational. It's almost like uh, observing the world without bringing attention to myself. Yeah. So that that made me my kind of visual understanding and uh, my sight even more kind of tuned into the present it's, it's, it's really fascinating how things that happened to you in your youth seem to be some of the biggest drivers and most a lot of people point to their childhood yeah we know um so i was told that something like 90 percent of our conditioning as human beings is in place at seven years old yeah i like uh, not to make this about my story at all but like um uh, like I remember when I was a kid, and my dad's like was a, an alcoholic. Uh, he's kicked it, kicked it now. But I remember being able to kind of, I guess, manipulates the wrong word, but I would know how to play a situation yeah. in order to get the the outcome that I kind of wanted, yeah. so that to avoid these awkward scenarios. And that has kind of 
played out quite heavily in my later life as well, where I'm able to, you know, I feel like I've gained a good perception of being able to see what people are about relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, that you touched on it there about when you're a child you, you don't have all these prejudices in your mind you don't have all these worries you don't overthink things I think as we grow into adults we do become more intelligent but we tend to lose sight of our true self you know and we've got been given all these things to think about and you'll know from being creative being creative is more of a feeling and an observation and knowing an intuitive thing so as kids we're much better at it and when we grow into adults, we kind of become more complex <laughs> and more. Yeah, I heard this great thing the other day where this chap was talking about, you know, he said how he was trying to live more like a child. And when yeah. you're a child, you don't think about your status and, you know, what people, uh, how people take you. You just no. get you just get excited about the next thing that you're going to do. Yeah. You go, that's what I want to do next. And, and then... You basically follow your curiosities and you yeah. explore yourself. You, you ignite and, that passion within yourself and you just explore that, don't you, rather than anything else. Your children right. will run around for hours, <clears> don't they? Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty, right? <laughs> that's yeah. why everyone... Uh, most people, when they think of stories of their life, they reminisce on their childhood, most prominently over other periods yeah. in their life. That's before all the... Because children are, are loving and happy and excited beings, you know. And then we get moulded into these serious and down and negative adults. And when people look back and reminisce in a nostalgic way about their childhood, that's what they're actually missing. But the truth is you can recreate that as an adult. You just have to pull away the layers and the, the trauma that you've suffered in your teens and adulthood. Yeah, they say that enlightenment is, I guess, is peeling back all those things that we're taught at school yeah. and uh, getting trying to lose your ego and all the rest yeah. of it. Well, you know, all, all, all you're taught to do at school is to respect authority and relay information that's given to you as fact. Right, so this is an awful segue because uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've, we've diverged quite far, but that's all good. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about, so with your team, there was obviously some hurdles you faced. You, you had to uh, renegotiate your relationship with certain people, obviously without naming names. Can you talk about some of those experiences and how you handled those and why you, you know, what led to those incidents and what could people potentially learn from those in the future? Yeah, sure. So I think when you start out on a creative project like Wonder Kid, you know, you need, to, you need help from people you know. So obviously I can't make a website, I can't write a script, you know, I can write, but I can't. So you need, you need help from people, you know, and you pull in favours from friends and people you know, you know, and the problem I found is as Wonder Kids snowballed, either some of the people weren't capable of going with it to the next level or they didn't have the best of intentions with it. And, and what, do you, what do you mean by that? So what, what um, best intentions? Well, you know, I, th- I think when, when you're dealing with something with a low budget or no budget and you're you're getting favors from people you know you you can you run into kind of free scenarios there's people that help you out and do a good job and they're a pleasure to work with and it's it's great but then there's uh, some people that might make you wait a bit and mess you around a little bit but they'll still do a good job and that's you know that's fine itself you know 
But then you, you kind of run into some people that will keep reminding you of the favor they're doing and they'll miss you around and they won't put the work in that's required. And it's and some of those people might be very talented, but it's those people that you need to kind of really think about whether you continue working with them again after. Is that because, right, so this is a weird balance just in the industry, right? So everyone wants to work on good projects and sometimes mm-hmm. you're working on free projects. Mm-hmm. And I think we've had conversations before and it's and it's and you've said, you know, if someone's said that they're prepared to help and so we've made, we know that it's free. I'm a very appreciative of their time because they're doing it for free, but then they use it as a kind of bartering tool or... They go into it with really bad attitude as a result of that. Yeah. Um, that. That's probably the biggest challenge I've faced on it, this journey. Was there early warning signs that you could have chopped it off early had you been able to identify it? Um, hindsight's a great thing, you know. Now, uh, now I'm much better at recognizing whether or not to even start working with someone because that might be a problem but back then no there's no there's no real way of foreseeing it unless you've got been through it basically and i think the probably because wonder kid was such a good idea and it was gaining such traction you know people some of the people that were working on it were, were more obsessed about the the benefit they could get from it rather than what we're actually trying to do. And and I don't think when when you're trying to do as much good as we are, you can't have people like that in your team, no matter how talented they are. You know. And I think uh, it's sorry to pull it away from the the mission which we'll we'll, we'll delve into the mission a bit more in the next question. You're talking about the way sometimes people act in these counterproductive ways for the mission and I think that when you're trying to create something you need and I'm not saying you didn't do this but it's about conveying that it is about that big goal and that there's no it's not egos on set it's you're driving towards this bigger mission Mm -hmm. but just something that I feel like young creators can benefit from is to understand that when you're starting out you are lack you do lack resources but what you have is you've got time and you've got people with skills that are ambitious and they're not tainted by, you know, years of corporate world or whatever. And so you're looking to help one another in those early years. And what naturally happens is that you you each progress. At the same rate, yeah. Exactly. Like, so when I came to London, I was earning, and not to make this about money, but, I, you know, I've made significant progress financially in the last three years. But part of the reason for that is because as myself and the friends that I've met along the way have, have developed, they've been able to push work my way and we've all evolved simultaneously mm. and that's ultimately where it ends up being you know people, you know. that's And in the early days, you can't rush that. You can't expect too much. No. You just need to be able to... Well, you're kind of in the early days looking to build friendships and relationships, aren't you? And... And you help each other out. You so you, you ask someone for a favour and you do one back. And and as you all progress, it's, your, it's through your network of people you know that you become more valuable, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that as an example of this, you know, I was offered a job the other day that I would never get offered if I applied for it. Mm. It was a job that a friend, you know, they were like, "You, you could do this." Yeah, and opportunities like that arise when you you're a connector when you work hard on what you do well and you provide it to other people without expecting stuff in return and naturally there's this uh, i mean we don't we're gonna i think we'll end up going deep later but there's this virtuous cycle where you know things i don't want to say karma but it, it, it is that it is that essence uh reciprocity i think the the term is where you know you give and in return you receive but without the mm. desire to without asking for stuff you're simply trying to provide value to people and mm. um, ultimately that that's the thing which you get known for and people you know people are quick to offer you help as a result of that even when you know when you fall on hard times and all that kind of stuff right so that was me completely <laughs> messing up a nice little segue no, there no, again but um so one last thing, before, uh, let's go into this, because these last two are a little bit deeper, I guess. Okay. So you've had a lot of support from the LGBT. Obviously, the film is about um, the lack of openly gay football players in football, and you've had massive support from the LGBT community, yet you yourself are, are, are not gay. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what I find is that in life, people generally seem to fight for causes that affect them. Yeah. And you're a bit of an anomaly in that sense, that you've decided to help the gay community despite the fact you're not gay yourself. And I just wondered whether the fact that you are an anomaly in that sense, that there aren't many straight guys, or maybe there are, like really fighting for the cause, you would know better than me. Um, if that's, you know, helped the cause in some way, I guess. So... Initially, when I was first starting out, uh, it, it was something that I had to kind of answer a lot. You know, people saying, "Well, you're straight. Why do you? Why do you want to do this? Or why did you want? Why do you want to help?" Well, it's like kind of I didn't have the right to do it. Basically, you know, I, th- I made lots of friends in the LGBT community, and you know, it wasn't really ever a problem. But I think my main motivation. For for this in the earlier days was my love for football you know I love football and I've played it I played it all my childhood most in my early teens but I was always put off by the environment and how horrible it was and how you know everyone takes the piss out of each other and and it was driven from that trying to kind of enable in football to more people you know like what I love so much about football is you know you, you could go abroad and you could not speak the language and not be able to communicate with everyone but you can make friends with people by just kicking a ball around and you can become really close with people through your personality as a footballer and I always was upset about how I didn't really fit in as in football and how I, I always wanted to be a footballer basically but you know I was never didn't really feel like I fitted in but but I guess my, my philosophy with film uh, drove me to do this as well. You know, I what I I believe that because you can create a world on screen that you know, if you do if you do it in a certain way, the audience can believe they're watching something real. 
you should use it as a medium to shine lights on on subjects like this and and why this one's so important is someone can hide their sexuality and as you know as we don't know who the gay footballers are in the game no one will have been exposed to what it would be like for someone in that environment without this isn't about outing people but obviously through this process you will have heard rumors i'm sure oh yeah i, I always get told by people who they know is gay and stuff like that and like are there players that you feel so this is this is a tricky situation right because there's probably players out there i know that there's some of the biggest names in football are rumored to be gay mm-hmm. now um, obviously, if they came out, the football, which is my next question around football fans, but um, you know they they would see they'd get a lot of attention, probably ridicule from a huge amount of the football fans. But do you feel like there is a responsibility for some of the big players to to lead the way, or is it a, should it come from the community, the the people? Um, it's a, it's a very delicate kind of thing to talk about but what I would say is football is so far in the dark that it's it's kind of not it's kind of not the environment's not quite ready for a gay footballer to come out I think it wouldn't be as bad as some of the horror stories that people would make it out to be but I think football has a responsibility to change first so that when a gay player comes out it's the environment's safe enough but I, I often think about the possibilities a gay footballer would have to make change in the world. And with Muhammad Ali passing recently, you know, I, I think about what he did for for black people in the world. You know, he was world heavyweight champion in the '60s when black people were second class citizens in the eyes of the law and society. And here was. You know, boxing was at its peak in popularity then. He was the world champion saying, you know, being black is great. Being black is a beautiful thing. Being open about being a Muslim in a time where, you know, that was just unheard of. And going up against the American government on a war he didn't believe in against you know, other minorities. With football now, football is the most watched and played sport in the world. You know, the, pre- the Premier League has a global audience of 450 million, many of many of whom are from countries like Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, where, you know, being gay is either illegal or can lead to death. And if we had an out gay footballer at the top of the game, the ripple down effects would be huge. You know, it would it would it would reach all these people. You know, it'd be the role model that these people need and it, it would certainly act as a catalyst for making the world a better place yeah I agree um, I think one of the so one of the massive hurdles about uh, a, a gay player coming out is obviously the fans so the fans mm. play a huge role and um, this is one of the things that's always uh, I've not been attracted to about football is th- so the perception of football fans are these kind of yobbish people and you've mm. got firms and uh, that are you know they fight based on their teams and uh, all of I don't know the complexities of it but that is like really ingrained into football culture and yeah. it's almost like the thing which 
a lot of people buy into. And then obviously there's course, ban- yeah. there's like banter and the lads, and I think there's like a tribal thing there. Like oftentimes you'll see uh, fans on the train, for example, and they'll all be shouting and saying abusive things that they would never say if they were just on their own but they feel comfortable in an environment surrounded by other people that are like that and do you think that 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 will change like or has that been too heavily ingrained into what people buy into with football well I think it will change you've touched on it very well about why it's that way you know football's been a working class sport it used to be football hooliganism, you know, that's gone away, but there's still this tribal mentality and people think they can say what they want, etc. Um, you know, and you compare it to rugby, which is a middle-class sport, you know, opposition fans sit next to each other, they drink in the stands, it's all... F- it's a much different environment for a game which is, isn't too different, you know. But um, if you look at what some of the black footballers went through in the 70s you know I think Cyril Regis had bananas thrown at him when he first started playing for West Brom yeah and um, that doesn't exist anymore in this country you know because the black players forced the game to have to change because of what they went through and a lot of good work has been done to raise awareness about racism and the negative effects so it can change because if we saw gay footballers or we saw more campaigns getting uh, mass coverage, it would educate people to to realise that you know you can't actually say that or what, you know, a gay joke is quite offensive, etc. But you know it's it's through that work that it will be done. And so it's, this is really worthwhile touching on because oftentimes when you're in the moment and you're creating these things you don't necessarily see the impact there and then but it's like this ripple effect right and sometimes i think you can identify that by post rationalize not not sure post rationalizing is the right way to put it but if for example we look at other phenomenons in the media Mm -hmm. where say for example there's bird uh bird flu is it swine flu but you know whichever whichever one it was and then there's the ebola outbreak or there's uh, radical Muslims and there's this, that and the other and whatever's the prominent thing in the media at any one moment in time seems to be the zeitgeist of the moment the thing which everyone's talking about mm-hmm. and then a few months later the news stopped talking about it everyone's forgotten about it everyone's yeah. in their own little bubble and are thinking about their own self-interest they forget about it but at the same time there's been you know some information Im- embedded in them and maybe if you can make it a big enough issue in the eyes of society that people start to come around to it, the shift it come, comes that way. Like, I guess how... I'm fumbling my words a lot here, but how did the transition for black players come about? Was it... Did there have to be, like, an elite black player that yeah. people loved? So the talent was basically... Footballers are like racing horses, you know? You know, they're the... They're, they're the athletes, you know. They're, they're they're what win your games basically. So the talented black players came through. They 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 put up with the abuse and and they overcome adversity and and got through that and paved the way for more black players to come through, etc. Um, there's a term 
used in politics a lot called tipping point. So if things become so bad or the public are so kind of annoyed about something that it, it has to be changed, you know, before, you know, a lot of politicians or a lot of decision makers, they will wait until something's at tipping point. So the reason football's managed to get away with this for so long is because they've not been put under pressure. There are no gay players out in the top six leagues that will force the governing bodies and the media to have to. Do you think there could be that? I'm trying to think, uh, you know, I instantly go to ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> As you uh, would. Yeah. Um, I feel like players who are this, basically, you we we perceive players through um, our TV screens, yeah. YouTube videos, things that we see. If you're very, very comfortable in your sexuality as a straight player, but you're trying, you're happy to make the influ- to to have influence and try and force change. Could they not feasibly say that they're gay? They're, <laughs> that they would receive a sh- like a ton of press, knowing that they're straight, but but comfortable enough to to face that abuse. Would I guess no I player some, would no player no, would openly do that? Would, would they? Be- kind of accused of being dishonest after that wouldn't they but like would that it's kind of like what, is a, what to, as an experiment you mean? not even as an experiment I mean say say 10 of the biggest players in football claim they were gay mm-hmm. and that even if they're straight straight or gay doesn't really matter in order to um, raise it's kind of like when everyone wore the black and white wristbands right yeah. In order to in order to for it to blow up on a big stage, you kind of need a catalyst. Hmm. And maybe if some straight players claim that, even if it came out that it was, false. well, I think what what needs to be done is there is a huge amount of coverage to fighting against racism within global football. So in the Champions League, there's an advert that's all the top names in football saying "Say no to racism" in their own language. You know. Racism isn't tolerated. You know, any any form of racism becomes front page news. What what we need to do in football is to give campaigns about other forms of discrimination the same the same kind of coverage. You know, you know if if the Champions League advert featured ten of the biggest names in football saying "say no to homophobia," then it it would have that effect. Do you know what I mean? So that's what needs to be done, and I think. I think you know the media is starting to understand that this is a big problem and that it's, the statistics make it even more shocking and more coverage is being given. But you know, until until people are so kind of offended by homophobia or they're so offended that there are no openly gay footballers in the top of the game, that these governing bodies have to act. No, I think I think the the other. There's another side to this whole thing which is really sad, but it's just true in general, which is people often complain about the wages that payers get paid, right? Yeah. And I always say to people, if if if, pe- if the amount of people that watch football were tuning in to me going to the toilet, I would want to get paid the same amount as a football player to go yeah. to the toilet because what I'm, what I'm trying to say there is it's all about how much value you bring to a mass audience. And nobody is tuning into Joe Blogs at home, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all across the world. 
So there's a lot of pressure on those players if they don't perform, they instantly drop out of the limelight. Yeah. Um, they're paid, but that's so that if you're a liked player, mm-hmm. your value your value is disproportionately more to other people. Your wages are disproportionate because on a team, when you watch Real Madrid, even though all the players are amazing, people tune in because they like to see Ronaldo. You know, like disproportionately to other players, yeah. people that don't aren't even into football tune in to watch Ronaldo because that's the only player they know on the team. For example, yeah. Um, if all of a sudden a player with massive notoriety came out as being gay, they would feasibly, with the audience as it is, would lose a lot of following. I don't it's, think so. You don't think so? No. From dealing with brands within football, I know for a fact that it wouldn't affect their sponsorship deals or anything like. You know, for example, if if a player has a sponsorship deal with a, a global brand and they dropped them when they came out you know it'd be a nightmare for them they'd be ridiculed and but you know, i think they if a footballer was to come out you know a top level footballer they may lose some fans they probably but gain a lot more <laughs> they'd gain a lot more and they they transcend the sport well you look at people like david beckham who you could arguably say is one of the biggest superstars of football yeah, ever and he transcended football he became a you know the equivalent of a hollywood actor's fame from being a footballer and a top level gay footballer would have the same ability you know even a, a footballer that was not quite top level say but a Premier League footballer you know they would they would become more famous um, I think the problem the biggest problem is the, f- the fans really you know and the abuse they might face from the fans on match day you know but I don't think financial side of it is a problem yeah, you kind of need someone that feels strong enough that they could handle the chance and all the rest of oh, it. Oh yeah, of course, and that's probably why no one has come out. Yeah, you know, I I remember um, when I was little, um, if I did something wrong, my mum would go, "Well, you wait till your dad gets home," and it was always the the wait and the fear of what would happen when my dad came home that was the the problem. What actually happened when he came home wasn't actually that bad, and I think if you've grown up your entire life dealing with this issue within that environment there, there would be a huge amount of anxiety about what would happen yeah of course and that's probably the biggest barrier you know you, you yeah you're right it, you know it would take a tough character that someone that says you know what, I don't care you know if a if a especially if it was a, a prominent football player if they came out they would this would be like a legacy like a legacy oh, yeah, step of course you know, going back to what I said about Muhammad Ali, that's that's the way I look at it. But you, you can't possibly imagine what someone who has dealt with this their entire life feels about it. Yeah, I think the thing with Muhammad Ali is that he was the greatest boxing person, uh, greatest boxer. So that's kind of overshadowed in many ways some of the things mm. he did uh, outside of the ring. Yeah. Whereas I feel like if it was a player who was not Ronaldo or Messi. Obviously, if they came out, that would like, be amazing. Obviously, um, but ultimately, their legacy will probably be their football. If it was a, a, a very, very good player that w- that's notable by most people, say like um, a Ryan Giggs or something like that, like not the best player on the team, but really good. If they came out, 
Do you not think Ryan Giggs was world class? I think he was world class. Yeah, I but, think he was world class. But I don't. I wouldn't. But you mean like you know a, a team player that's not? Yeah. The okay. Like Paul Scholes. He's world class as well. What's okay. the only going with? This? I don't know very many football <laughs> players. <laughs> I know. I know Manchester United from the nineties. Um, okay, so let's put. Let's get another name then. Phil Neville. Phil Neville. Okay. Yeah. I, I think they need to be more prominent than Phil Neville, but if it was Roy Keane. Roy Keane. Let's go, yeah. Roy Keane. Right. So Keane. Roy Keane. Probably, yeah. <laughs> probably. If he came out, that would be that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if Roy Keane came out, they, yeah. being that he's not, he's a team player, he doesn't he's not this world class. Or you know he's very very he's good. Very good. He's, well, he's well known. That his legacy of coming out would be the thing that would you know be remembered uh, as his playing career as well. You know, his yeah. playing career would be equally matched by him coming out as a gay player. I think any footballer that comes out, regardless, yeah, their legacy would be what they did in the game. You know, I think it's that bigger issue right now. You know, sexuality and gender is a huge issue globally at the moment, anyway. And with football being the most popular sport in the world, and it would, you know, it would have a massive, massive effect. So. But you know, the, if you look at the players that have come out, like uh, Thomas Hitzelsberger, he was a kind of top-level player, but not you know the best in the team. He, was, he waited until he retired, and you know, he came, when he came out, that became a big news story. And with Robbie Rogers in America as well, you, you know, huge news stories because you know there are there are no other examples other than Justin Fashion. Well, I guess the th- um, so the thing is, is that. If they come out after the fact, it becomes a news story for a week. You kind of, it feels like... Yeah, well, you know, I think the message it sends, you know, I can't possibly comment on anyone in that environment, what they would go through, but, you know, if they have to wait until they retire, which both of them two did, you know, Robbie Rogers went on to play in America after he retired, but they felt that they couldn't come out while they were playing here because it would ruin their careers and, you know... Without getting too deep into it, what our collective beliefs shape the world around us. So if people think, you know, footballers think if they come out, they're going to be targeted for abuse and it's going to ruin their careers and no one's going to do it, are they? So. Well, this is, so, yeah, I mean, it's one of these things, right? Like if you're, you kind of need a player that's playing week in, week out where, you know, it gets brought up on the regular in order to start transcending this message. But like you say, if they think it's going to destroy their career, then they, they won't do it. Yeah. We kind of need, again, you need someone that knows that they've lucked in financially already, that they're ready for <laughs> these 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 things to happen. I, d- I don't know, it's, it's such a uh, complicated and convoluted thing, Like, and obviously with us not being gay, you don't, you don't, well, I don't feel I fully understand what the someone's going through. Yeah. Um, right, I think we've talked for an hour on the opening. Yeah. That stage one? <laughs> yeah. So let's fly through these. So um, right. moving on now in the interview to some uh, other kind of questions, which hopefully we'll go back to filmmaking and um, some of the things that Reese can teach you about. Yeah, you know the the industry and some of the things you can take away. So, uh, who were your biggest influences growing up, and what did you learn from them? Um, I'd probably say 
got a few. I'll, I'll be quick about it. Uh, put Alan Shearer, the footballer. I was a big Alan Shearer fan when I was a kid. He he kind of got me into football. Really, what I liked about him is you know he he would score goals under any situation. You know he, he could handle pressure really well. You know I was a very shy little kid and he was very courageous and I always admired that. Um, so Robin Williams, you know his acting got me into film when I was a kid. You know, just how happy it could make you and you know how. You could bring happiness to others. And then probably Will Smith. You know, I watched his career go from being a Fresh Prince to a Hollywood actor. So you didn't see his music career then? Yeah. <laughs> he was the music before Fresh Prince, wasn't it? Yeah, but he was the Fresh Prince. Oh, it? was that, was that the... Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Was that yeah, so his like... music and then the TV show and then becoming a, a, you know, an A-list Hollywood actor, you know, it was, it was inspiring. Wasn't wasn't um, just to delve into that very briefly? Wasn't um, Will Smith like one of the first actors that said you couldn't basically you couldn't have a? There wasn't very many black um, like A list. You'd say you'd have to say that he was probably the first black box office, you know, big box office actor, you know. So where was Denzel? And, and well, you know, Denzel's a top level actor I'm not, I'm not taking anything for that but you'd have to, you know with, with the box of his figures with Will Smith from Independence Day onwards he was I guess he was the first black man to emulate you know that yeah that level of you know, mass audience yeah yeah you know, so he was a pioneer back then but I, you know I didn't I didn't even know that that was a thing at that yeah age. no well, yeah this is really interesting right it wasn't until I became an adult that I looked up Will Smith to realise how intelligent he was and how inspirational he was. For a lot, for for us, a lot of these things didn't really occur to us. You know, when no. I when I grew up, I, I I had no prejudices between black and white actors. No. But I'm guessing at some point that this was like a prominent thing. I reckon so. Yeah. No. And that probably also comes down to the fact that you've got again, you, we're talking about the the production of film. It used to be you had to have a lot of money, and historically there would be white, middle class, upper class um, people producing film, mm. and so. Well, you know, it's, it still exists that way. You know, a lot of people on a film shoot are you know white male middle class people. So you know, it's still a problem, but you know, I think I think we're going through a really important time at the moment. And, across the world where diversity is becoming a big issue everyone's looking at and this is a great time of change yeah um yeah looking forward to seeing how it all pans out over the coming years i guess um so do you have any routines or rituals that you use to help you create things yeah sure um i meditate twice a day and i have done for the last four years so I probably you... didn't do it twice a day every day, but <laughs> as a rule. Yeah, commitment. Yeah, I do, yeah. And uh, I'm guessing, is it headspace or calm you use? Well, um, I think we live in a really distracted world. You know, I get emails on my phone. You're constantly stimulated with videos and advertising and imagery. It's very hard to regain focus. Now, when I was a kid, I was very creative. And through meditation and mindfulness... 
I learned how to focus my attention on right now and become creative again. You know, that was one of the biggest problems I had. When I was at university, I couldn't even get to the bottom of a page without having to read it again. It's almost like I was reading, but I wasn't there. So what meditation teaches you how to focus your attention on right now and be completely present in what you're doing. So that's that's the ritual that I do every day. And it's I would say it's the, been the most important part of my development as a filmmaker. Yeah, I've I've been experimenting with meditation now for just over a year, and not to obviously there's a lot of uh, science and uh, virtually every prominent figure now is talking about meditation. Yeah. But I think one thing it really helped me with as well is I used to suffer quite severely with insomnia. Yeah. You know, like I, I'd only get a couple of hours sleep every night, and it was because there was all these thoughts buzzing around course, in my mind. Yeah. And if you even if you use it, like I found it's really good for helping you get to sleep at night. Cool. Obviously, yeah. it's not supposed to, it's, you're intended to use well, it. You create a state of peace and calm to enable you to drift off. You know, because we live in such a distracted world where we're constantly being stimulated by information, when you sit in a dark room with just your thoughts, of course, it's gonna, you're going to get carried away deep in thought. So, yeah, I guess for anyone that's listening to this who's suffering sleep-wise, it's a great tool to just help. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm just saying that as a, you know, that might be the first first thing people do mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll come to understand well, the benefits of it. Meditation really helped me with anxiety. If you consider that uh, obsessive thinking spirals out of control, you know, a negative thought starts off with one thing and soon it's like it spreads like a virus and you're worked up and anxious. It teaches you not to control your thoughts, but how to recognize and observe your thoughts as if they're separate from yourself and then not be taken away with them. So you may well have answered this question then. So what is your biggest struggle you face creatively? And what have you done or what is your plan necessary to overcome it? So do you think that's the same? Um, yeah, well, I mean, another thing, more, a more specific thing I struggle with is sound. You know, so I have an acute visual understanding of the world. I'm very, very observational with my sight, but what I soon come to realise as the more Wonder Kid progressed and the more serious it got, that my understanding of the audio side of filmmaking was slightly behind. So I had to really learn to understand that. It's similar qualities, but I, you know, I had to teach myself. You know, people will often overlook the fact that filmmaking is an audiovisual medium. And the way, the way we observe a film as, as viewers, you know, you see something with your eyes because the speed of light is faster than the speed of sound, so you see something. But if you don't hear it, you don't believe it. So this, the sound part of it is much more important than a lot of people would, would give it credit for. So that was my biggest challenge, really. And so you've overcome that by how, how have you... Just obsessively getting into it. Yeah. Learning everything about it and applying the skills that I have in other areas to it. I think uh, I can probably add to this. So, when I was, I, I did a brief stint at Widener Kennedy, which, for those that don't know, is one of the most well known advertising agencies in the world. They produced um, some of the most well known commercials ever. Mm-hmm. And Tony Davidson, who's the ECD at Widen's in London, used to shout about, um, you know, audio and visual. So, he would. You'd show him the concept and he'd want to know as well as the concept like what what are we hearing you know that was one of his questions every single time so just to reinforce the prominence of that 
and then probably a great example to check out actually so one of the commercials that he produced was the flat eric campaign oh, wow. uh, the levi's one yeah. with the yellow puppet now you imagine seeing that commercial without the audio which was um it's an integral part of it, isn't it? yeah mr ozio or something mr wazzo yeah yeah is that his name um it becomes a very different experience and mm. music is uh, so well, important. The, important the most important part of the film is a story but I'd say the most important part of being an audience member is your emotional journey and a lot of filmmakers will forget about that but a lot of emotion comes from sound of music it's like when you're watching a horror right and you turn down the sound so you don't hear the do <laughs> like the creepy music or whatever yeah, yeah. You lose the element of fear. Well, music can really set the tone for how you're supposed to feel. I don't like to use it to make tell an audience how to feel, but it, it certainly it certainly sets the foundation for the emotion you're supposed to feel as an observer. It's often overlooked. <laughs> okay, so next question. What is one thing you've learned that's changed your life forever? Um, one thing I've learned that's changed my life forever... Probably be probably be going back to meditation and the the, the importance of alert alert state of presence. You know, many people spend a great you know they're not self aware. They spend a great deal of the time thinking and worrying about the future, or feeling guilty or analysing the past and not actually here. And you can go about your life being completely distracted, but you know. Being creative requires you to be right here and right now. And you know, most of my teens and adult life, I was constantly in a deep state of thought and not really here. And that's where problems arise. And, and through through learning to be more present and alert and mindful, I've kind of reconnected with my true self and been able to succeed. This is something that I struggle with quite a lot because... You know, I listen to a lot of things and I hear these prominent figures yeah. and people talk about being in the now. But then, and also this idea that, you know, you could die tomorrow, so live yeah. for today. But the problem, we can assume that we are going to be alive a year from now, especially when you're young. And so you you have, you can plan for the future. When you when you started Wonder Kid, you were assuming mm -hmm. you were going to be around in six months' time to see it out. Yeah. So I, I I get what you're saying. You're in the moment, in the moment. Yeah. But how much do you feel time we should give to this idea of forecasting? Like I, for example, we're doing this podcast right now. Yeah. Uh, I've got zero audience at this moment in time. You yeah. know, but if I do two hundred of these, yeah. All of a sudden, it becomes you, a thing. If you build it, they will come. Exactly, or well, kind of, yeah. I, I think I I, uh, I like to dream, but I don't become attached to it too much. So I look forward and I think, oh wow, I'd love to do this, or I'd love to do that, or, and then I let go of it, and then I focus on what I'm doing right at this moment. You know, so. A lot of people become attached with the end goal rather than the process and become a, they, they, they want to be able to dictate how they get there. So you, it's good to dream, it's good to set goals in the future, but you just work on right here, right now without really worrying about... I think that is a really, really good, clear distinction, isn't it? Because it is about, 
if you focus too much on where you want to be, you you lose the joy of the yeah. moment. And also, when you get there, you would probably become obsessed with hanging on to it if you were too attached to it. Well, you know, like this could all go away for me tomorrow, and I have to go back to my parents and go work on a building site. I wouldn't really care. Yeah, and I think you have to live like that, otherwise. You can really stress yourself out. Well, I think the thing which one of the things that I've realised is actually, um, I was listening to this thing yesterday, and the guy was saying, you know, this guy was a multi-millionaire who was talking. And he was saying, the burger tastes the same. The you know the beach I lie on is the same as the one you lie on when you go on holiday. Like the the the, the things you chase for in success are often, you know, disproportionately. Uh, viewed in society as these these things that you should aspire to, and not saying that you shouldn't aspire to to have wealth and to live in mm. abundance, but ultimately it is the journey and it's the things you accomplish, not accomplish, but the the yeah. things that dr- drive well, you, and make you, you know, passionate. If you if you chase happiness in the external world, you'll never be satisfied. That true happiness is with how you feel within yourself, you know, and material things, you know. Can make people really happy, but you can't take any of it with you when you die. All you know, this is the experience is the, the important thing. I agree. Um, how do you think the industry will change in the next ten years? So I th- I'll be really interested to see what happens with virtual reality. I think if Apple made a uh, VR headset become a household thing, and the possibilities that would create would be endless. It's not something I'm. I think much about but you know if it became like that it's something I'd have to embrace I guess I think if you look at the way social media has become more and more instant with Snapchat now being like the big thing that kids use I think things will become more real time you know things will be consumed and then forgotten much quicker than they are right now and I don't know what that would mean but if if virtual reality becomes something then I guess experience the user experience would become more I think it's. Important, I think it's the the knock-on effects could be amazing. The science to suggest that when you visualise something in your brain, that your body goes through the your same. body goes yeah. through it. So you're a basketball player. You're trying to practice your free throws. You don't necessarily need to be on the court. You can be imagining hitting a hundred in your head, yeah. and your physiology and whatever will, in some way, kind of mimic it. It's interesting when you have a dream, I feel, and sometimes you wake up performing the action. You know, like you it's like, oh, there's like there's a there's a clear connection there. I don't know how, I'm not a scientist, I don't know how to explain it. But with VR, there's this possibility to trick people's brains into feeling like they're experiencing something. And how if you're, for example, uh in another country, there's a million applications for it, but you can completely change people through a a film is one thing you take it away with you but Mm -hmm. to feel like you experience something where you were actually there uh, well i think i think the obvious kind of thing that we can look forward well the thing we can we can know as a definite moving forward with something like vr is that filmmaking and gaming will start to come together which they have already to some degree with the fact that Hollywood actors are performing in games, right? Yeah, and 
you know, I, I couldn't possibly tell you where that would end up, but it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I think with all these things, there's a bunch of people that are pushing the inno- innovation, yeah. and then there's a bunch of people going the other way. Not even necessarily going the other way, but they're just kind of waiting for it yeah. to happen. They're, they're prepared to leverage it when it comes about. You know, we're, we're becoming less and less social as beings, and you know, people use dating apps to talk to each other, and they probably like get advice on talking to each other through that. So there's, <laughs> we're becoming less and less social, and, and these things will only make that worse. So you'd hope that. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Because it's. You, you, we've got more potential to connect with everyone else than ever before. Um, but it may be used as a, you know, kind of net, like it's, destructive it, stimulus. It's, it's, it's a wall in front of us. I often, I often say to my mom, you know, I was lucky. We went through this internet era, and I just so happened to be old enough to identify my habits. But chil- children that are ingrained in this from like four, five, yeah. like earlier, it. It becomes uh, it's as it's as bad as a drug. Yeah, well, that's what it is. You know, I think there's been studies that people go through the same effects as taking cocaine from Facebook, like notifications and stuff like that. But I forget what the w- chemical is. It's dopamine. Dopamine. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the way here, you know, I saw a toddler on the tube with an iPhone playing a game, and I know from like seeing some of my younger cousins like at that age, they can just pick up a piece of equipment like that and just be, know how to use it I know that a lot of work's been done on software to that most things are quite easy for people to pick up but they have the ability to just intuitively know how to use something and that can be used as a force for good or it can be used in a destructive way where you know you're just a fiend for this stimulus in everyday life rather than well again obviously you've got the the long tail on the internet the fact that no matter what your viewpoint is outside of the online world that it can be reinforced on the internet Um, and so you get some children who have some questionable beliefs which often happens when you're a kid um, you know because you're influenced by other people or you hear something and whatever and then you go online and start discovering it all of a sudden you can fall into a very deep hole of of exploring subjects that you know well I, I, I mean I've learned so much from looking at alternative sources on the internet. You know, most of my education came from from that. You know, rather than what I learned in school. But you know, you have to. There's not always a way you can know the validity of it, I guess. But um, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> it's fine. There's no uh, idea where I was going with that. We're we're uh, we're, we're creating quite a. Um, thing here so maybe let's burn through some of these so let's go through resource questions so things yeah. that people can yeah. uh, go and look up so what book or other learning resource has had the biggest impact on you um i'll say book um, <laughs> I, the reason i said that is because um for me for example it would be a podcast there's some amazing podcasts that i would recommend um i'd say the book that's had the biggest impact on me is um Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. When when I first read it, it was so kind of radical. It took me a while to understand it, but 
I think I recently went back and read it and I had a greater, greater level of understanding of it and it's really helped me with understanding meditation and the power of alert state of presence. Um, and another book that's really influenced me is uh, The Alchemist. Yeah, I've heard yeah, a lot about The Alchemist. It's a fable. It's very, it can be very... Uh, because it's, it's a, a lot of people that are into um, non-fiction recommend it but it's a it's a story right yeah yeah it's um it's like a myth really you know about pursuing your dreams and and there's some valuable lessons in it that you know i can relate to and i'd, I'd recommend anyone that has big dreams and they're on a journey like mine to to read that book i thought you were actually going to recommend this is just from conversations you've had in the past joseph campbell's book um about it's about story uh, I swear it's got um, what looks like Jesus on the front, but it's it's the. I, th- I swear you've mentioned this to me before, but it goes through the story, uh, the the history of story from like the ancient times. No, no? Yeah, completely. Oh, maybe I but, should uh, <laughs> maybe, check it out. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sounds great. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I've um, mixed that up then. Um, your favorite website? YouTube. I've learned almost everything from YouTube. You can learn <laughs> anything from YouTube. I like, you know, I've grown up in front of a television, so the easiest way for me to learn is to, you know, just sit there and watch something. And I quite often, later, you know, go to bed with something on that, you know, is there something I want to learn about or something that can help me as a filmmaker or as a person. And that's where I do most of my learning. This is going off that subject a little bit, but something um, that I've talked about recently, and I think things like YouTube show it perfectly. I've, especially around the whole Brexit thing in the UK, I've heard people talk about um, not wanting to water down, say, British culture, yeah. right? And and the fact that multicultural society, you become this melting pot where everyone becomes the same. Now, I don't think anyone would argue that the internet is a, a non-diverse place where there's where there's no um, pockets of creativity where people are doing different things. Mm-hmm. Yet, to me, the internet is is like a symbol of like a perfect multicultural society where yeah. like lots of information lies, but there's an, it's still so diverse. Yeah, you'd hope it would always be that way, and it doesn't become regulated by governments and stuff. Yeah, because. You literally, well, I I found growing up that I felt quite lonely and isolated. But the internet, when it developed into what it is now, it became this way to just completely absorb yourself and and explore things that you're interested in. You know, before, I remember in the nineties before the internet, there's not really much I could have, you know, other than TV. There wasn't really yeah. much I could do in you know, computer games, and the internet is. You know, it's become. It's a way to excel your passions, right? Yeah. The, the, the uh, for example, for example, me in the design industry. Uh, while I credit some lecturers f- for being great, I definitely learned the craft through the internet. Yeah, and me too. Um, the the one thing I say about the internet, which I find destructive, is that it shows young people a lot of people that have made it success successful in their field, and they are most of the time relative anomalies um you know for example as a filmmaker a lot of people on youtube especially would look up to someone like say casey neistat 
who you may or may not know him, but he's got you know millions and millions of followers, and people look at him and go, "It's achievable what he does," and they don't quite understand the amount of say work that goes into that, the yeah. years of perseverance, and people become get depression, anxiety because they don't appreciate the the amount of work that goes into someone. Yeah, well, you know. Until someone makes it, it looks like an overnight success story, doesn't it? Because you're not exposed to what they did to get there. Unless they've had a very public journey. And um, and another bad thing the internet can do is can make people obsessed with like followers and likes and their public perception of themselves rather than being themselves, really. And that whole influencer culture that's about at the moment is, you know... Historically, being famous was always about either being incredibly talented or incredibly successful. But now, for many youngsters, being famous is the end goal, and that, that's a really negative. Yeah, way it's, to look it's, at. it's interesting that actually just being your true self and um, uh, yeah, that's what actually ends up attracting people. Mm. That just being who you are. Um, is actually the catalyst for being successful rather than yeah. trying to chase it well, by you know, artificially creating an image. When, when you are completely and utterly yourself and comfortable in that, that's how you can reach your full potential because there's no filters to your behaviour or anything. You just, But for many people, they'll be more concerned with fitting in. You know, going back to what you were saying about Brexit and, and all that, you know, um, individuality should be celebrated, not kind of critiqued you know and we we do live in a multicultural society and people should be interested in people that are slightly different to themselves rather than fearful of them definitely you know deep we're going deep <laughs> what tools do you use to be more effective what do you mean by that um <clears throat> For example, a hammer and a nail. yeah, a hammer yeah. and a nail. So I use, for example, Trello as a, as a good tool I use in order to keep on top of projects. I use a MacBook, um, iMac, and a notepad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any? No, uh, no, no, like, no. Genuinely, like people love this stuff. So for me, I, I write everything down. Like I, you, you're the same, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm super particular. Like I, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I use a le- Lectrum. 1917 sketchbook and I have uh, a 0.8 fine line of pen Do you know like I feel you're very particular about yeah, that yeah I because it's no, just... I, my handwriting is quite terrible and <laughs> but I do like a nice pad like yeah. the leather one I've got there but um, I guess, yeah. interestingly I feel like these sketchbooks that I, most people I meet who are very productive they they have a sketchbook well, I, I, you know, I, I think once, once you, once I write something down and I can see it, it's almost like I'm physically putting something out there into the universe will make it more likely to happen. And and also, I, I'm much better at remembering it once I've wrote it down. <laughs> although I do keep a lot of things in my head, you know, and I'm constantly writing a to-do list and and working down that list, and that's that's yes. how I keep the productivity high. Really. Yeah, the the listing. Have you taken on that listing thing? You know, I, I've got the little external book for just purely for lists. You said you nah. might steal it. 
No, I didn't, unfortunately. What I just do is every morning when I get to my desk, is I write a to-do list. And then I work through it. I make notes along the way, but I always have a to-do list every morning. And... That's a good way to do it. Um, what is your favourite movie and or documentary and why? Um, I have two favourite movies, both made by the same person. So that's Lost in Translation and Somewhere by Sofia Coppola. And I, the reason I like these films so much is both of them inspired me to do it, to become a filmmaker. And through those films, I learned the power of drawing an audience in, watching believable real-life events and how you can take them on that journey completely having their complete and utter attention and, and move them and change the way they think about things. Great answer. Um, what event would you recommend people go to? Gay Pride. Okay. Because the first time I went there, I, I really couldn't believe the energy of the place. You know, I, I'm quite... I'm an empath. I feel, I feel the energy of the world around me, and you know that it can ordinarily be quite chaotic. But I went there, and it was a complete and utter state of calm and love. And there's people that might have spent a great deal of their life not being true to themselves, being themselves, and thousands of people are by the side of the road celebrating and helping them do that. And it was a beautiful thing. And okay, so. <clears throat> you are very open and you were up for embracing that experience. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to change or try and help people who maybe aren't so. Yeah. If, if if you're in that situation where you're you're not necessarily like really comfortable going to Gay Pride, yeah. is there something that you would say, go to this group or, uh, you know, is there a part of it which is the, you know, the, the low... The junior side of it before you advance to yeah yeah well I I was lucky enough to march with the gay gooners the first time I went but you know you can just go and watch you, know, you can go stand in Trafalgar Square and watch a few people go by and see what it's like yeah you don't have to march yourself yeah so that's so that's good so people can just stand at the side of the road yeah. and basically because it's a carnival right yeah it's you know it's I think it still exists as a protest but it's more of a celebration. Yeah, you know, and for me as a straight man to go there, you know, I've never, I've never really faced any real discrimination because of my gender or my sexuality. So to see people that have kind of feel liberated and happy was, you know, a beautiful thing. And each year I've been to three now. Each year it gets better, and I feel you know, I really look forward to it. Wicked! I will be there next year. Um. So, some quick-fire questions. Try and be as uh, on it as possible with these, I guess, but no no pressure. So, what is your favourite brand and why? Adidas. <laughs> I wonder why that is. Tell us. Well, I grew up wearing Adidas tracksuits, you know. But through the journey of Wonder Kid and, and Adidas to support that film, help us create the authentic aesthetic, really meant a lot to me. And... When I think about, you know, for a global sportswear brand to have supported the cause in the film at a time when, you know, it wasn't really 
wasn't really getting that attention. It meant a lot to me, and I'm quite proud to wear it now. Yeah. Wicked. Um, what do you do for fun outside of your day job? Um, and when I say day job, I know it's fun for you, but um, <laughs> it's funny, me and you both, right? We, we Our yeah. jobs, our passion, but yeah. what other things do you do, I guess? Um, I play football. Um, I've had a off and on for like a year and a half, a really bad knee injury, so I haven't been able to play. But through that, I've started coaching, which has has become like a passion of mine. You know, it's very similar to directing. You know, I'd say it's it's virtually the same thing. You get people to believe in a vision, understand their roles, and get the best out of people and help people in that way, and then. Um, through Wonder Kid we started a girls football team and that's been one of the favourite things to do I think this is important to point out you didn't have any prerequisite kind of coaching qualification or anything like that did you? no no um, but I think the qualities you need as a coach is more the same as a teacher you know I, I've played I've been lucky enough to be coached by some top coaches growing up and played football a lot so I, I, I you know it's not like I'm coming into it completely raw but it's 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 that side of it, you know, communicating information to people and helping them, you know, observing them and giving them advice. It's the most important part of being a coach, rather than the drills or the scientific side of it. I think. Okay. Um, what's your favourite quote? It's um, if my mind can conceive it and my heart can believe it, then I can achieve it. By Muhammad Ali. There we go. Nice. Um, favourite. A uh, fact that people don't know about you. I am really colourblind. Wow. Which is not good if you're a filmmaker. <laughs> but it makes me more focused on what I can see rather than the colours. Getting a good cinematographer helps. Yeah, and a good colourist. You know, it takes. You just tell them what you want it to look like, and they make it happen. You know. Uh, if you could meet anyone, who would you want to meet, and why? Uh, Kanye West. You know, I think I think the media point him out to be nuts, but it's just because people can't quite understand from their level of perception what he's saying. I think he's a genius, and I think we will look back on his life the way people look back on John Lennon's life. You know, I can't wait. You know, I'm, I can't wait to see what he does. You know, in fashion and, and whatever he decides to do after that. You know, and one day I'd really like to meet him and shake his hand. Bold. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm hoping that one day this podcast could have some form of influence and we'd be able to connect people. Fingers crossed, hopefully that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope so too. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, so as a send-off, do you have any projects on the go right now? Obviously we know Wonder Kid and yeah. uh, that people can check out, if so, where? And uh, so, where are the best places for people to reach you? So, uh, yeah, obviously Wonder Kid is due to be released soon and the, the trailer's out if you search Wonder Kid trailer on YouTube you can watch that um, or go to wonderkidfilm.co.uk um, I'm also working at the Telegraph making short documentaries at the moment until November so there's one already made and another one that I'm making very shortly so you'll be able to see them and is the I know it's been a great debate but is the title do we have a title for that, for that? Uh, yeah I think it's Consider by the Telegraph Okay. For the documentary series. Great. And um, I know you don't like plugging socials, but 
drop some of your socials for people to follow you and keep up your progress um yeah so it's my twitter handle is at reese chapman r-h-y-s-c-h-a-p-m-a-n and my instagram handle is at reese chap which is <laughs> r-h-y-s-y-c-h-a-p actually um I actually named it that as a joke with my mate Chris Hall, whose Instagram handle is Chrissy Hall. Right. But I never, never come to change it. I should have probably. Everyone's got a dodgy social handle. Um, I think people probably just think my my middle name is or why. Right. Yeah, maybe. Now they won't. <laughs> Mine's Mr. Ricky Richards, and it's because I just couldn't get Ricky Richards. Did you not? Someone and else I- got it. Yeah, someone else had Ricky Richards, and I was like, I could do underscore Ricky Richards, but then people get confused with dashes and underscores yeah. and stuff. So I was just like, I saw someone do Mister, and I was like, that's what my, my post my, comes my to. My favorite as. one is uh, when people have like their name and then official. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're not famous or they're not like well known. They're just like. Well, I saw one the other day, and it was like, I'm a thousandaire. Like you know, <laughs> got two <laughs> got two grand in his bank. <laughs> Thought that was quite good. Um, so, final question: If you could give the world one piece of meaningful meaningful advice to help people live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? Um, probably be the true meaning of love. You know the word love is so misused that it's almost lost its meaning you know people think it is just romance but it is much much more than that you know we're only actually capable of two emotions and that's love and fear and what love is is it's everything from appreciation gratitude forgiveness compassion passion joy all of these things and fear is the polar opposite you know judgment guilt resentment anger hate all of those things. But a lot of people live their life in a constant state of fear. You know, they're afraid of things or they you know, the fear of failure or they're striving and driven by fear. But really, you know, the the ultimate state is a constant state of love. You know, if you can rid your life of all your fears and live in that state and you can achieve whatever you want. I think that's a really powerful message and I'm uh, really glad that we can finish on that. Thanks for having me. I uh, just want to say, yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Obviously, you didn't need to do this. And, um, yeah, really, really value you. I value you too. We've been uh, friends now for years, and I'm uh, looking forward to continuing our journey, I guess. Yeah, as am I. Thank you. Nice one, man. All right, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to this. Um, obviously, without being too pluggy, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you feel like you've got something out of it, I'd really appreciate sharing this as it is in its infancy and I'm trying to do more positive things for people in the world. Um, And this is one way of doing so. So thank you all for listening. Uh, Tune in again and bye for now. Cheers, guys. Hello, everyone. It's Rick again. Before we close up today, I just wanted to throw in a couple more things. I really hope that you enjoyed the interview with Reese today. Obviously, everything that we mentioned, we covered a a bunch of different topics. You can find all the information about them in the show notes, which you can find at rickyrichards.com. And uh, other things, I just, like, if you really enjoyed the show, I'd really, really appreciate it if you could rate me in iTunes. Obviously, this is a new venture for me, and 
Um, you know, it's a make or break based on the first couple of months as to whether we can go on and make this thing successful. So uh, I, you're one of the first listeners to the podcast and I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe. Obviously share the episode with anyone you feel would uh, find it valuable. Uh, valuable. And also if you could rate it in iTunes, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, lastly, if you yourself are extremely talented, have done something of note and would like to be featured on the podcast, or if you know somebody else who you think I should interview that you would really like me to get in touch with, please drop me an email at hello at rickyrichards.com and I will endeavour to try and get some people on the podcast if they uh, they fit the bill. Uh, just to, as I said in the episode, this is about the leading figures of design and innovation, but by design I really mean anyone that is creating and uh, yeah so I'm just looking to meet as many interesting and creative folks as possible and see what we can learn from them so thank you for tuning in I hope everyone has a great day and I look forward to doing episode three soon bye for now